This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, I'm Peter Ansorge. Uh, there is a conventional wisdom that says playwrights are very short careers. Uh, they only last about five years and then dry up. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of exceptions, and certainly David Hare, who's, who's with us tonight, is one of them. He has written, actually, over 30 plays and has, in those plays, charted the changes... I was going to say that we have gone through, but being here, I'm going to say the English have gone through both in their private and public lives since World War II. Um, we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to start on the South Downs. Uh, David notoriously is not an autobiographical playwright. He said that from the beginning continues. However, one of his recent plays, South Downs, is autobiographical, which has led him on to write this memoir, touch the blue paper. So we begin, actually, and David's going to read a little bit, on the South Downs, but also in Paisley. <clears throat> These are the opening paragraphs of the book, which I wrote, as, as Peter says, because I wrote a play about my um, time at school and so many people wrote to me that I decided perhaps uh, that it was more interesting than I had always thought it was um, and so this is how my life began I when I was stand. shall I stand up yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why not David this feels like an audition <laughs> when I was growing up nothing excited me more than getting lost Walking bored me when I knew the way. Until I was 21, my home was on the south coast, firstly in a modest flat up a hill in St. Leonard's, later in a semi-detached in Bex Hill. But when we made our annual family trip to my maternal grandmother's in Paisley, my sport was to get on a bus, close my eyes, and then get out. I was barely 10, and I had no idea where I was. Sometimes I recognised Love Street, the home of the local football club, St Mirren, for whom my Uncle Jimmy was a talent scout, but nothing else made sense to me. My grandmother, Euphemia, was furious when I got back two hours late for tea. In those days, ham, lettuce, tomato and pork pie, followed by a lot of biscuits and cakes. This after a lunch of mince and tatties. When I disappeared, nobody seemed overly concerned. Children vanished from time to time. That's what happened. A lower-middle-class childhood on the south coast of England in the 1950s became a distinctive mixture of freedom and repression. It was because children were encouraged to make their own way home from school that my nine-year-old friend Michael Richford and I encountered our first sex offender on the Downs right next to the air raid shelter, which no one had bothered to demolish. The spectral predator was moustached, wearing a grey overcoat and a grey scarf. Our refusal to show him our penises did not seem to lessen his pleasure in showing us his. <laughs> we two boys hurried home through the abundant nettles and brambles up our separate back paths and past the hen houses that lingered on beneath hedges at the ends of gardens for so many years after the war. Later, we were taken by police to line-ups and asked unsuccessfully to identify various old men coming out of the Playhouse cinema after a smoky matinee of the Dam Busters. <laughs> but in spite of all the dark parental huddles which followed on the incident, I was still allowed at 13 to go on my own by train to London. Why? At 15, I was hitchhiking across England to Stratford in the hope of seeing Vanessa Redgrave in The Taming of the Shrew. At 17, I left for America. My mother wished me good luck, and no doubt she fretted, but at no point did she try to stop me. I was free. Later, I read Nietzsche. 
all truly great thoughts are conceived by walking. In retrospect, it's extraordinary how much license my mother allowed to my sister and me. It goes without saying that after the Second World War, when dealing with their children, adults never stooped to our level. Down where we were, we looked up at all times. There was none of today's dippy celebration of children as little unfallen gods. <laughs> we were not pushed self-importantly through the streets in thousand-pound chariots, scooping up, <laughs> scooping up croissants and ice creams on the way. Nobody told us we were wonderful. But on the other hand, even in the stifling atmosphere of suburbia, among those rows of silent russet-bricked houses and identically tended lawns, adorned with billowing washing lines, strawberry plants, runner beans, and raspberry canes, we were granted a level of independence which now seems unimaginable. David, you are notoriously seen, uh, including by many of your contemporaries, as you'd know better, as coming from an extremely privileged and posh background. Now, quite clearly, this is simply not true, is it? No, but I went to Lansing College and I uh, was given such a terribly... I was a scholarship boy and I was forced up through society and I was given such a terrible time in the first six weeks that I, was, that I was sent to a public school, uh, that I learnt the accent that I now speak in uh, because it was the only camouflage. It was simply a matter of So camouflage. you learnt it? Oh, yeah. It's protective colouring because I was mocked so much in the weeks in which I arrived for coming with a, what would have then been called a, co a common accent. And what was that accent like? Uh, well, <coughs> I mean, by the standards of Bex Hill, it was quite highfalutin, but it... <laughs> It, it didn't pass at Lansing. And Lansing, I think what I... I mean, to be honest, the, uh, the desire to write the book came out of bewilderment. And bewilderment is what also powered South Downs. And I realised bewilderment is what had powered me as a writer altogether. Bewilderment and anger, anyway. Uh, but bewilderment because everybody at that school, Lansing College, perhaps because a third of them were the sons of clergy... Um, already seemed to belong to a club whose membership rules I could never understand. I knew they didn't like me, and I could see that I was a lonely boy and a little bit friendless at the beginning, in the early um, time. And that seemed to me to be because I had come from that dreaded thing of which I never dared speak, a semi-detached. <laughs> and I don't know where they came from, but I knew it wasn't a semi-detached. And they, <laughs> they had that air of confident boys who appeared to know each other already. And even if they didn't know each other already, they knew other people who knew other people who knew e other people who knew each other. And that was, you know, me bouncing against the glass wall of the English class system. And so I constantly, you know, I was trying to penetrate it. I didn't have any romantic feelings about wanting to be an outsider. Uh, but I did uh, fake this accent in the hope that it would fool people into thinking I belonged. Um, but it wasn't that I was against the rules or have ever been against the rules. I've just never really understood the rules. And that's a different thing. Describing also your upbringing in the semi-detached, you said that that community also seemed to be governed by rules which nobody seemed to be able to explain to you what they were. It, it was, was secret. You know, anyone, uh, you know, when I hear John Major talking about <laughs> wanting to return England to the 1950s, I just go, are you out of your head? <laughs> I mean, do you have any idea of what the 1950s was like in suburban England? And it was a very repressive... Uh, everybody was obeying rules which were not stated. I mean, the were certain things were very clear. You don't wash your car on a Sunday. You don't put your laundry out on a Sunday, uh, you know, you don't, I mean, you, you have to trim your garden, you absolutely have to cut the edges, you know, although, I mean, that, that sort of code is easy, but generally, we felt ourselves not quite rising up to whatever the standard was meant to be in the town, and a lot of people were very, very unhappy in the 50s through this feeling of repression, and that well-known statement, as I say in the book, 
you know, I've lived through the period in which this wonderful expression, be yourself, <laughs> has appeared. But in 1950s, be yourself would have been an impossible thing to be. I mean, people wouldn't have known what you meant if you said be yourself, uh, uh, because it was just not on the frame of reference. And you say that your, 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 your mum, Nancy, was scared the whole of her life. Yeah. And she used to say to you, I love you, but I don't like you. Yeah. Well, that, that's how children were spoken to. That's, <laughs> that's all I can tell you. Or at least in the background that I came from, that was how yeah. a lot of children were spoken to. And you were... So I found a lot of children's literature, therefore, completely incomprehensible mm. because this idea that, um, you know, childhood was this paradise from which you fell seemed nonsense to me. It seemed more likely that you were... You had the same radar as an adult, but you were likely to be suffering a great deal more because you were not experienced at interpreting the signals you were receiving. So a lot of the time I spent thinking, why are people behaving in this extraordinary fashion? Now, often the reason for that was the very reason that I never thought of writing an autobiography, which was I missed the Second World War. And so I therefore believed I was living through uneventful times. But of course, in retrospect, I can see that everybody was damaged by the Second World War. You know, everybody kept saying, oh, thank goodness for a bit of peace and quiet. You know, this was said all the time in the 1950s when I was growing up. Oh, isn't it wonderful, this peace and quiet? Well, of course, I thought peace and quiet was <laughs> appalling. It was so boring. But of course, you never knew what it was that people had escaped from that they now needed peace and quiet. And so you had this sense all the time of having been born late and just having missed the most significant event of the 20th century, which had plainly marked everybody and made them quite strange in their behavior. A lot of people we met in those days, you would now say, had post-traumatic stress. They'd be receiving counseling. They'd be going, if they came back from Afghanistan or Iraq, they'd be going to see army psychiatrists. But they didn't exist in those days. So there were, the, yeah. there were an awful lot of damaged people walking the streets as a result of what they'd seen in the Second World War. But of course, there was an ethic whereby you weren't allowed to talk about it. And perhaps two of your strongest pieces, Licking Hitler and Plenty, do deal with the Second World War yeah. and the fallout from that. Now, your father also um, <laughs> was basically an absent father, yeah. I gather from the book. Can yeah. you explain? Well, my father was in the Merchant Navy. I mean, he had been in the Royal Navy during the war, and he met my mother in Greenock um, because, you know, he was docked there. Um, but he basically did not modify his life in any way. It suited him to be 11 months away. So he was there one month a year? He was there for one month a year, during which he'd take us to... He was with the P&O, so he'd take us to the ship for a few days of unimaginable luxury on board ship. He was a purser on a ship. Um, and then he'd disappear for the ele other 11 months, leaving my mother to bring us up alone. Um, and it was not so much that that was a difficult thing to deal with as, as that he was totally uninterested in us when he did come for the mm -hmm. month. And once he came on your birthday... Oh, yeah, he came, yes, he, he, on my fifth birthday, then he, uh, he, he was there for my fifth birthday, but on the morning of my fifth birthday, he got up and said, um, I'm going to take your mother on a holiday today. <laughs> and I, I remember saying, I didn't think it's a great day for you to go on a holiday today. And he replied, he, I think he, he replied, um, I know, but it's much the most convenient day for us. <laughs> and I've been very careful bringing up my own children to realize how a remark which doesn't seem to have any charge to you, but which seems completely natural, can actually go into a child's heart and remain lodged there for the rest of their life. Uh, my father would always be saying things like, oh God, don't say that boy's up again, and stuff like that. And every time he said these things, it would just fill me with a feeling of hurt and a, a feeling of, of not being wanted, really, that was fundamental to my childhood. And it, I, I, my own life. I've bitten back saying things to my kids because I know that they lodge far longer than you realize. 
and you don't intend them as, as hurtfully as the child remembers them. Do you think you expressed your anger at all at this situation? No, childhood? I think I only began to get angry when I went to school. <laughs> I, I, think in, I, I think bewilderment is the w word, yeah. and I think anger came much more from going to these terrible schools, uh, which were, you know, basically staffed either by passive or active paedophiles. Uh, to, an, to an extent that is really unimaginable today. I mean, it, 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 no one who was, who was not part of private education in the 1950s can begin to imagine what these schools were like. And everybody, you know, I was lucky enough to be loved by a, a passive, a, a man fell, a, one of my teachers fell in love with me, but he did not have any physical requirements of me or need for me beyond wanting to hug me and to educate me to a, you know, ridiculous degree. This was at your prep school? Yeah. And he took you to the cinema and stuff he like that? He just took me to the cinema and educated me about art and music and these things, but he was in love with me in a way that a child can't possibly hope to deal with. How, do, how, do, how can you possibly, you know, you're eight years old or nine years old. How can, you, how can you begin to, how can it fill you with anything but feelings of shame and inadequacy, even if the demands are not physical, yes. as they were not with, the, the teacher that I'm talking about, but other teachers would just explode and suddenly, you know, mysteriously disappear from schools. Is and this was happening all the, the time. The repression. Well, there was a reason people chose to work with small boys. That's, <laughs> it, and you know, that, that was the profession that they chose. And they were largely unsupervised and they were largely in an intensely emotional state a lot of the time. Um, because, um, you know, their fantasy lives were revving at some rate that we, we now can't imagine. But you, you did notice, uh, both at the prep school and then at Lansing, uh, what was a good teacher and who wasn't. You say about Lansing, I'll just read this. You say that culture, which had long been seen by public schools as only a tributary of religion, was for an increasing number of boys and staff alike coming to represent value in its own right. And nowadays, you say, education has become a commodity like any other, a place you flog rather than a place where you are flogged. <laughs> yeah, I went to a religious school for an Anglo-Catholic <laughs> education, but it was obvious by then that the Church of England had lost a lot of its authority. I, I, would, I don't know. My guess is that's to do with the First World War. And that at it, the fact that the Church of England sanctified the slaughter in the First World War, I think, was deeply disillusioning for a certain, you know, generation, a couple back from mine. And the, that the Church offered no analysis of what had happened in the First World War, I think, was probably... But it was in long-term mm -hmm. decline. And one of the things, I suppose, that made me write the book is that, you know, when I was born, the things people believed in were, well, the empire to a degree was still believed in. Deference was certainly believed in. Men in suits were believed to have authority and to know what they were doing. Uh, you know, uh, religion was, you know, people would still have called themselves Christians. Uh, socialism was deeply rooted in culture all over the country in certain communities. And almost every belief has eroded every public belief and certainly our belief in the benign nature of pol politics and belief in politicians has almost at least south of the border completely evaporated and so that has happened in my lifetime and we're left only with a belief in private virtue we think of our friends as kind we think of the people we know as nice people oh she's a wonderful person he's a wonderful person he's so kind yeah. But, you know, even as people organize to do good things, altruistic motives are no longer trusted. And so it's public life that has withered in my life. And lifetime. these are themes that you went on to write about. I wasn't as aware of it as when I wrote this book. I when I wrote the book and began to think about what had really changed, because the book only covers the period, it, it covers the years where social justice and equality were the public, were still believed in. In other words, it goes up to 1979, 
and the election of Margaret Thatcher, yeah. which coincides with the end of my first marriage when I was 31, and so, 32. And so at that point, there's a sort of hairpin bend. It, it, up to that point, from the moment I'm born, there's a belief in the welfare state, public health, the improvement of everybody, democracy, the improvement of the common lot, notions of the common good, service to the common good. And then obviously in 1979, when Thatcher arrives, my, my life is very neatly segmented. Yes. In other words, 34 years in one direction and 34 years in the other. You know. After Lansing, you, you, you go to Cambridge. Uh, and whereas you do have some positive things to say about your teaching in the sixth form, you have almost nothing positive to say about the teaching at Cambridge. Well, the teaching at Cambridge, we were, we were being trained to be critics, as you were, Peter. Yes, absolutely. We were that. Uh, we, were being we were being, you know, whereas at school I'd had great teachers who taught me about the greatness of literature and who guided me through literature to find things about which I could be enthusiastic and which would illuminate my life. At Cambridge, you simply had people called critics, and I was trained to be a critic. And that meant finding fault with the greatest writers who ever lived. Um, there was a very short approved list at Cambridge. Shakespeare, Milton, sort of on and off. George Eliot, okay. T.S. Eliot, okay. Uh, Dickens was said to lack the formal control of a great novelist. That's what, that's what, that's what Leavis said about him. Thomas Hardy off the... I mean, just off the scale in ridiculousness. <laughs> you know, and, we, and all you got was a group of men, and they were mostly men. I mean, there were one or two women, but they were mostly men, explaining how, dis how disappointing literature had turned out to be to them. <laughs> and how it had not delivered what they had wanted in their lives and left them beached like whales <laughs> on the shore of the Cambridge English Department. <laughs> which... which I mean, it was just mass organised whinging, <laughs> and it, it, it. You had gone there because of a certain teacher. I'd gone there because of Raymond Williams, and Raymond Williams disdained to take. You know, I went there because Raymond Williams was a great socialist critic, and Raymond Williams basically was interested in the relationship between culture and society, and he said, "Culture is not the stuff that happens at the top of the society in drawing rooms with people drinking fine china." and fine minds discussing ideas. It's the movement, it comes up from the movement of society below. And his work was always to try and show the relationship between the art and literature of the time and the social and cultural movements below. And by art and literature, he included culture more generally. In other words, he was the first serious critic to write about television, he was the first person to be interested in mass media. He wrote about newspapers in the 19th century. He was, he, he was completely unsnobbish. And he had this wonderful phrase, culture is ordinary. And what he was saying is that culture is already there. The culture is with the people. The expression of that culture will be through particular cultural artifacts, but they may be uh, brass bands, or they may be television programs, or they may be pop groups or they may be um, books of poetry. They may be any of those but things. then he didn't teach you? No, well, Raymond was <laughs> too busy to teach, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so he was another uh, absent he was father? Another, for me, he was another absent father. I'd been, I'd been a long time looking for a father, and <laughs> I read Raymond's books. I'd never heard of the place where he taught. It was called Jesus College, Cambridge. I managed to get admitted to the college, and on the first day, he had a clipboard, literally, where he said, well, you'll be taught by so-and-so, and you'll be taught by so-and-so. And, -so, and, and I, I'd gone to study at the feet of a great man. Um, and he just farmed us all out because he was too busy writing his own books. And also, he was leading the English Revolution, which was due to happen in 1968. And he was drawing up the May Day Manifesto, uh, a markedly unrealistic document. We felt, my generation felt, I, I kept saying to Raymond, and are you going to be the bloke in the beret with the machine gun who seizes the post office tower? <laughs> you know, I didn't quite see you in that role. Uh, but he, that's what he was doing so, rather than teaching us, which he was 
paid to do. So, meanwhile, you are going to the cinema and you start yeah. to become interested in drama. Yes, and At film. Fringe. And film, yeah. Yeah. And uh, as a director, is that right, at Cambridge? Yeah, I started as a director, exactly that. And uh, I would never have dared to write at uh, Cambridge. Um, there's a wonderful thing. In this atmosphere of critics, there's a quote from Ted Hughes that I have, where Ted Hughes says, um, the only way you could be a writer at Cambridge was by avoiding the gun towers and crawling out under the wire, is what he said. <laughs> so writing literally never occurred to me. Well, the strange thing is that Cambridge, which has produced most of the artistic directors in the National Theatre, a whole generation of directors and actors, itself doesn't have a drama department. Is that if, right? Yeah, it doesn't have a drama department, Cambridge. Uh, uh, and the English department had no interest in the theatre itself. No, well, I mean... Peter he... Hall says this is why you were all so good. There was... <laughs> I, I don't think that's true. I mean, I mean, even Raymond, who did write... He wrote a, a drama himself. He wrote a play, but he'd never been to the theatre, in my recollection, for 20 years. I mean, he wrote about drama without ever actually going to the theatre. So it sort of seemed to me axiomatic that it was going to be more interesting to make things than to moan about things. And the cinema you're seeing is yeah, the novel... The, the cinema, you know, the cinema in the 60s is in this incredibly rich period of Bergman and Louis Malle and uh, Fellini and Antonioni and Joseph Losey. And so every night you're going to the cinema to see something extraordinary that's taking you aback and which seems to have what I call in the book a sort of carbonated vitality that literature at the time didn't seem to have at all. That's right. And then you meet uh, someone who looks a bit like Jean-Luc Godard, your friend Tony Beecart. Yeah. And it leads to you forming a theatre group. Yeah, with Tony Beecar, we formed a theatre company in the late 60s called Portable Theatre. And Portable Theatre was simply came out of Tony looking at a portable radio and saying, why can't theatre be portable like uh, that radio? And so we made a theatre group which could... This is once you left Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. and we made a theatre group which could perform anywhere. It could perform on canteen floors or it could perform in army camps or it could perform in village halls perform in schools it could it performed in prisons we performed anywhere we we would happily have performed in here we could perform anywhere we were and this became a, mo a fringe theater movement yeah. an underground which had not really been present but did have public money from the arts council yes i mean i say in the book um that between 1968 and 1987 800 theatre groups were formed in Britain. And that was, of course, nothing that could possibly compete with music for reach and influence. But there was something paradoxical in the anger out of which all those groups came that made people's contact with them very vital. Um, and I do remember, you know, I'm regularly approached by people who say to me, I saw Portable Theatre how many years ago. And for them, it was a very memorable thing, simply because the idea that you would travel around the country and throw quite sharp, antagonistic, sometimes political, sometimes sexual, you know, violent plays at an audience in unusual surroundings, not the surroundings of regular theatres, at that time was quite a radical notion. But the idea was to shock an audience. Yeah. To... Well, we all believed that um, we had a sort of apocalyptic sense that capitalism and the country's institutions could not continue in the form that they were continuing. So the idea, mostly through the early plays of Howard Brenton, who rapidly became our house writer, um, in Howard's plays in particular, he dramatizes the idea that it's all an illusion and the curtain is about to fall and you're about to see spectacle. the spectacle. Yeah, the spectacle. Uh, he, he was much influenced by a French intellectual group called the Situationists, who say that the job of the artist is to throw the bottle through the screen, like a drunk at a cinema, so that when you throw the 
if you throw a bottle through a screen at the cinema, the film continues, but the audience notices, because Audrey Hepburn's nose has now got a big hole in it, uh, that the audience notices that they're not watching reality, but they're watching something unreal. And in the same way, the spectacle of society is unreal. Yeah. Uh, when, on 9-11, the planes went through the Twin Towers, I rang Howard and said they are doing exactly what the situationists said, which is drive a hole through the spectacle. To which Howard replied, yes, but I, I don't think they've read the situationists. <laughs> and, but the unique thing about Portable, it was writer-led in yeah. some ways. Where all the other well, more than writer-led, I think we were unique in still... Not unique, but we were unusual in still believing in the power of the word. Uh, you know, in the late 60s, then the theory was that words were a corrupt form of communication and that they were finished. And the future lay in music, drugs, video, dance, physical theatre, mime, puppetry, etc. And that nothing could anymore be communicated through words. And obviously you had some fantastically distinguished playwrights like Harold Pinter, who had drawn attention to the bankruptcy of language. And so this theory that language was finished yes. was very, very powerful in the 1960s. Yes. And Stein, it's yeah. sort of coming round again. Yeah. You, see it, you see it coming round again in student theatre now, a lack of belief that language can hold and work. And but we were doing Kafka and Jenny and Strindberg and a, and a middle European repertory that depended strongly on words. And then you started to do contemporary writing, perhaps yeah. with how Brenton and Tony got... I mean, there was Howard, Brenton, Snoo Wilson, and then you. Yeah. Which is a, a BBC commissioning editor would kill for that track record these days. Yeah, but we were but all very different writers. Yes. I don't think that, that we got lumped together as the portable writers, no. but we were all completely different. But you were actually going to be a director. You fell I was going writing. to be a director, and then I, I had a... Um, Snoo was due to write as a play, which we were due to start rehearsing on a Monday. And on the Wednesday, he admitted that he'd not written a word. <laughs> and so I did what any director does in that situation, which is write a play in four days so you have something <laughs> to rehearse. The play was absolutely terrible. <laughs> Um, but, but the actors thing. looked at the dialogue, and when they looked at the dialogue, they sort of went, yeah, I can say that. That's sayable. So although the play was awful, the dialogue was good. <laughs> and um, that meant that I got commissioned by Michael Codron, who was the chief West End producer of the day. He was the man who'd given the world Joe Orton and Harold Pinter and Alan Akebourne. And uh, he asked me to write a play for him. So I was in a very paradoxical situation, which was that as a director, yeah. I was at the avant-garde, cutting-edge, you know, travelling theatre. And meanwhile, in the evening, I was writing plays for, a, for the most famous West End producer. And the first one of those was Slag. Yeah. Do you want to just... Well, Slag was a satire on feminism, which at the time was not... Um, Jermaine Greer had not yet published The Female Eunuch, and I'd been reading some of the wilder literature coming out of America, which really made me laugh. Um, and I sort of wanted to write a, something that was both a celebration of feminism and a, with an all-female cast, which was fantastically important to me at the time. In other words, I thought it was ridiculous that all plays were about men. Um, and I, but also that was a satire on this separatism, which at the time was fashionable in... Feminism. In other words, feminists were talking about going off yeah. to create communities by themselves. Yeah. As I believe Yvette Cooper is saying, the railways should be yes. run by women also. Yeah. Uh, which, which, which I think will really, that, yeah. will really solve the problem. <laughs> um, and <laughs> she said it didn't matter if they were nationalised or not nationalised as long as women ran them. Well, so, well, anyway. She said it was just one lot of middle-class, middle-aged men. That's right taking over from another. That's right. So I wanted to, I wanted to write a comedy about feminism uh, because I was sort of high on the ideas, really, in feminism. What's so interesting about when you started to write that play, though, is that you, you, you actually say um, 
that something happened when you sat down to write it that you felt you weren't actually controlling? The yes, whole. I mean, the obvious thing, I suppose, I had been trained to be a critic, as I say. And also, I loved literature, and I loved poetry, and I loved drama, and I loved, the, you know, classic novels. And um, it had never occurred to me that writers didn't write what they wanted. It just never, nobody had ever made this basic point to me, that when you sit down to write, the mystery of style is exactly that. It's a mystery. So the conventional thing is to say, a playwright says normally, the characters took over. I intended to write this, but the character wouldn't do it, so something else happened. But what would be truer to say is that every single stage instruction, every line of dialogue, every entrance and exit is, pleases you or doesn't please you for reasons that you can't explain. If, if I say to an actor, you have to say the line like that, and they're paraphrasing, they say, why do I have to say the line like that? Why, why can't I say something near that line? To which I reply, it's no different from a painter. A painter can't explain why there has to be a splash of red on that side and the green's got to be in that corner. A painter can't tell you that. They can only tell you that for them it comes alive when it's like that. Yeah. So I thought I was going to write the play I intended to write. Instead of which, I wrote a play, or rather, my subconscious, my inner sense of style, dictated to my conscious mind a play. And it's not that I don't have any control over it. I'm not a total mystic. I have some control over it. And I can answer intelligent questions about it. If somebody says, why do I do this? If an actor says, why do I, why do I, why do, I do that? I can sort of give them an answer. But... Ultimately, why an, a, a work of art is the way it is, is something that the artist has no control over. And it's interesting, because quite often people say uh, that you are more of a journalist than a dramatist, which I certainly do not agree with them, because but this is clearly, you need your imagination to be engaged with the material. Yeah, I think the difference, the difference between journalism and art, if you like, is that art has an element of metaphor. You know, journalism is just reporting facts. Um, but any decent play that is, um, has any hold over an audience at all is not just about itself. It's also about dozens of other things that are suggested. It's a metaphor for other things. And so the more specific you become, uh, the more likely it is that you'll create a general metaphor. And so the example I always give is that the play that I wrote about the privatization of the railways called The Permanent Way, um, a friend of mine from New York came out of it in floods of tears, and I said to him, oh, I didn't know you cared so deeply about the privatization of the British railway system. <laughs> and, and he said, I saw it entirely as a play about AIDS, and I read it as a play about AIDS because it is about the question of what suffering was necessary and what suffering was not necessary. Could we have done something to stop yeah. the deaths in the railway, um, uh, the crashes, or could we have not? Similarly, could the, the terrible death toll in New York have been averted in the 1980s? Could it have been dealt with? And so he was in floods of tears, and that play to me was operating as a work of art. It wasn't working as a piece, it wasn't working as a piece of journalism because it was open for anybody in the audience to read into it something from their own life. And now you move away from the fringe to bigger theatres, to the National Theatre, to the West End, which again was not without controversy. Was yeah, it? I mean, what I'm doing in the book is defending the 1970s. I think that they get a bad rap, um, and they get a bad rap because history belongs to the victors. So this terrible narrative has appeared, which is Britain was going to the dogs, Everything was awful. It was all strikes in a three-day week. And then suddenly Margaret Thatcher appeared and everything was put right. That's right. That is now in the history books. And you, you never read a history book that doesn't tell the story that way. Now, in my view, in the 1970s, it was a bitterly disputatious time. And it was a time in which people like me, who were working in the arts, got really hurt I don't look back on it with any nostalgia because the battles were 
often horrible and bitter and personal and mean and nasty, but we were arguing about things which we thought were fantastically important. They were very, the cultural arguments, like the political arguments in the 1970s, were about basic issues. They were about workers' control in politics. They were about whether the system could be run differently. And these were arguments well worth having. And similarly, the arguments about art in the 70s, from which I suffered, because when I went to the National Theatre to work, I was told by people on the fringe that I was a traitor and that I had betrayed the cause of the fringe by going to work at the National Theatre. Um, these disputes were seminal and they were signs of life. And they were, they were not arguments about things that don't matter. You say it very interestingly because this was the late 60s, the 70s. There were a lot of drugs around. There were a lot the alternative society. You say in your book that when you went to parties, you tended to observe, to stand back, not to. Do you think that is what an artist does? I mean, Henry James, Thomas Mann, they say an artist observes, never participates. That's not quite the same. But nevertheless, you kept a step back. That was just my temperament, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't a revolutionary, no. so I couldn't join the people who believed that the revolution was going to happen. But I also had very bad... Uh, I, drugs don't work for me. They, <laughs> they make me very uncomfortable, and they send me a message which I don't wish to receive. And the message they basically send me is, everything is not all right. That is the message my subconscious sends me when I take drugs. And I really don't need to receive that message on a daily basis. So I was very ill-suited to the cultural life of the late 1960s because of that. And I just didn't drift away peaceably on any drug. I, I, I just became deeply disturbed, as many people do, but they don't talk about it. Because the only people who write memoirs are musicians. And <laughs> The period is simply, and I have this period to myself, it's very odd. You know, apart from Salman Rushdie, who wrote a memoir simply because, um, you know, he was the subject of a fatwa, which fortunately I never was, so he had something to write about. But when I was writing the memoir, I was very aware that musicians and sports people had written about this period, but very few people who were involved in the arts in any way, have written about what, what these years were like. Famously, they say that if you were there, you wouldn't remember it. <laughs> but that's not clear. No, I remember it all too clearly. But in fact, you meet, you meet a very formidable TV producer, first of all, agent, Margaret Matheson, and you settle down to what you describe as a rather conventional marriage. Yeah. At an early age, at 23. Yeah. And I would say, in, against myself and in terrible... Uh, self-recrimination that I think unconsciously I was doing that because I wanted to be a writer. And I think that, you know, as Flaubert says about if you want to write violently, then live like a bourgeois. And you and need to get up at nine o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to have a certain And, and, and I, I thought I could close down my emotional life in marriage. And if I closed down my emotional needs in marriage, uh, that meant that I'd be able to concentrate on my work. And then, uh, around that time, another West End play is done, Knuckle. Yeah. Uh, and in the cast, you meet an actress called Kate Nelligan. Yeah. Do you just want to well, mention... Well, Kate, Kate was, a, was a phenomenon. She was a Canadian, probably 23, and uh, she saw in my play, which was an anti-capitalist play presented in the capitalist West End, to a vituperative response from the critics who were absolutely <laughs> furious about it. I mean, really furious about it. But the only person who came out with any... Uh, they, they couldn't say Kate was bad. I mean, you, you, there's all... You know, critics in those days were incredibly hostile to the new. I don't think it's true anymore. Well, I think that is true. Mostly when you read reviews now of plays by new writers, they're generous. They're, they're very generously stars. received now. There's a sort of feeling of, oh, this is a young writer, we need to be kind to them. Yeah. There was no such feeling in the 70s. <laughs> there, was, there was a feeling of 
this is new, we must throttle it at birth. And your, mom sa your mother says, why is Bernard Levin going after you again? Yeah, yeah. My, my, mother, my, mother, my mother used to always have cuttings at home, and she'd say, I see Bernard Levin's being very rude about you again. And I'd say, yes, Mum. And then she'd say, what have you done to him? <laughs> I'd say, I haven't done anything to him. He just hates me. So the Bernard Levin thing did end wonderfully, in the, which I, is a story I don't tell in the book, that he spent his whole life pursuing me, Bernard Levin, and saying I was a terrible writer and there was absolutely nothing worthwhile about my work. And then I gave a lecture in the 1990s, and when I arrived at the Royal Geographic Society, I was very surprised to see Bernard Levin and a companion arriving. And I said, what on earth is Bernard Levin doing here? He spent his whole life attacking me. And they said, well, he has Alzheimer's, and so his carer brings him every week in the hope of <laughs> stimulating his brain with a talk, right? So <laughs> I, I started my lecture, and, you know, I looked down, and this man was just smiling seraphically at me, as if every word that I was saying was pleasant to him. And at first I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I see I've lived long enough to see what happens to my critics. And then I thought... It could very easily be the other way round, but I'm the one with Alzheimer's and I'm listening to a lecture by Bernard Levin, which um, would not have pleased me. But you, you go on to work with Kate Nelligan several times yeah. more, and you say, I'm not quite clear when it was exactly that I decided that Kate Nelligan was the greatest actress of our time. Yeah. Uh, she didn't stay in England that no. long. And I wouldn't say she was forgotten, but had she stayed, she would undoubtedly be. She didn't with want to live the life. She was Canadian. She was working class. She didn't want to live the life of a British actress. And she felt by the time she'd played plenty that she'd been offered the best part that was going to go, that a woman was going to get to play for a very long time. And she and said. Plenty was your play in World War II. Plenty was my play set in the Second World War about a woman who comes back from the war and is disillusioned by post-war England. And she felt that um, she was American, she should have been American all along, and she didn't want to spend her life, as she thinks, swanning around in long skirts. But for me, she was both potent um, as an actress, meaning that she was just the absolute perfect embodiment of everything I wanted in the way she said the lines and in the way she acted. So I fell upon my dream actor which maybe Bill Nye is now, and Bill has become in the same way an actor who is just heaven for me to hear him say. But with Kate, it also became mixed up in our you, private lives. You and fell in love with her. Yeah, I fell in love with her, and it also meant that we fed each other's sense of embattlement, which both of us had. She felt misunderstood as an actress, I felt misunderstood as a writer, and that, create, as I say in the book, made us insufferable for many years. But it also produced work of a potency that perhaps yeah. we wouldn't have produced without each other. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I was worked on Licking Hitler, which you did with Kate. And I remember coming to the set one day. And it wasn't thinking, oh, the writers is uh, having a direct... And you wish you directed as well, was having an affair. But there was, a, that, that, there was a potency of something going on there, which you could Yeah, there was also feared. a potency with Billy Patterson. Yeah, Bill's was, here, he was in he's it. He's here today, and that was nothing to do with us having a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> We've probably got to... But it does, to moving again towards the end of the book, this, this does, in the end, end your marriage. Yeah, it does. And I think that one of what the book is really about the high price you pay if you want to take playwriting seriously. Yeah. And I did, once I started, I spent many years resisting the idea that I was a writer. And then when I became a writer, I acquired the necessary, the ruthlessness that I think is necessary if you are ambitious as a writer. And I think there's a lot in the book about the ugliness of that ruthlessness and uh, it's an unattractive thing to say, and it's not a thing that it's popular to say. Uh, but I think if you want to and push your writing as hard as I wanted to push mine and find out if you're any good at it, you yeah. do pay 
a price and the people around you, the people who are close to you, pay a very high price. This romantic idea of art is now completely out of fashion and yet it's, I'm afraid, what I believe. That's very interesting, yeah. And the second film you do with the dreams of leaving, it, it almost, <laughs> it is when you left your wife. Yeah, yeah, I, wrote, I was writing a film called Dreams of Leaving at the time I was leaving my wife. So <laughs> that is what I mean about managing to do the maximum damage and hurt to everybody around you and in the interests of pursuing what it is you wish to write about. And your marriage finally ends when you're invited down to Rye, I think, <laughs> to have dinner with two Guardian journalists. It's so true. Peter Jenkins and Polly Toynbee. Yeah, my marriage ended at Peter Jenkins and Polly Toynbee's house, it is true. And you say, in the 35 years since that unendurable weekend, I admit I've never opened The Guardian and seen the words Polly Toynbee <laughs> without groaning. Yeah, I mean, it's not Polly Toynbee's <laughs> fault that my marriage ended in her house, but it's true that the, the, the evening in which my marriage ended happened to be a night in which two journalists sat down to diss everybody, diss everybody. Edward Heath was a failure. Harold Wilson was a failure because he hadn't taken Peter Jenkins and Polly Toynbee's advice. You know, it, it, everybody, there was not a single person of whom a single kind word was said all evening. It was just a journalistic orgy of deprecation, right? <laughs> you should have listened to me. And that, you know, as I say in the book, you know, I was born in a Scottish family where the family religion was judgment. You know, my grandmother just judged. That's what she did all day, and everybody was found wanting, yeah? <laughs> I was then trained by critics to, you know, be t I was told all literature is wanting. This isn't good enough, yeah? Yes, yeah? And when I sit down and listen to a certain kind of journalist, just, you know, in that mood of you know, everyone who writes journalism, journalism is great, everyone who isn't a journalist, by definition, is an idiot. Yeah. That, that censoriousness in, in Polly Toynbee or Peter Jenkins uh, is just anathema to me. Because uh, that thing of judging people without seeking to understand them, yeah. that is the resort of the shallow journalist, it, it, that's what I mean I react and to. Polly Toynbee is now saying we should vote for Yvette Cooper. Now, you've written a lot about the Labour Party, and your plays have actually been, everybody says this, quite a few of them ahead of your time. The absence of war uh, about, said against, uh, about the, the, the notion of the 1992 election Neil Kinnock lost. It seemed to repeat itself just recently at the last election. Uh, but what's your view about what's happened since? Well, I, do, I wasn't really, because I've thought that labor culture was breaking up because the, the, the bonds that held it together have gone, um, I wasn't surprised and I wasn't really interested until Jeremy Corbyn said that he wanted to apologize for Iraq. And I just thought, yes. I thought, this is the most liberating thing that an English politician has said um, in a very, very, very long time. Uh, in other words, it's like a stain on the history of the Labour Party. The idea that the Labour Party went to an illegal war and messed up the lives of the Iraqis and has made no apology ever for that. For, I thought, okay, I'll vote for anyone who wants to apologize for what happened with Iraq. I, that, that, that seemed to me a watershed, and now the contest is very exciting to me because I would like whoever is willing to apologize for Iraq to, to win. That's very good. We want time for questions and answers. I'm just going to ask David to read one more little section right from the end of the book, which is also about his mother having at the end, isn't it? And then we'll open it up. Are you going to make me stand again? Yes. <laughs> he looked good up. Alzheimer's. My mother got Alzheimer's at the end, and this is what the, some of the last pages of the book are about. Um, in the coming years, during which my sister Margaret was close to my mother, it was hard for us to give her a birthday party every February and know that afterwards only Margaret and I would remember it. 
On one visit in 1998, I wrote down exactly what Mum said to me, a series of remarks in the form of a Beckett monologue, which nevertheless revealed exactly where her, her wandering mind was focused. I'm married to a nice dear man. Go quickly and I'll say nothing and you'll say nothing and our child will understand. I get myself so dead, I really can't play with these things. I can't get a name to give to you. Did you have a bad father? I've got the money, but I haven't got the money. But on occasions, Nancy could also rage. The most insistent theme of her conversation for many years was her desire to leave Woodthorpe Manor Nursing Home and go back to live with her mother in Paisley. She had had enough. She wanted to go home. Only Euphemia understood her. When she first began to ask for this, she would apologize afterwards. In the back of the car after a lunch with Margaret and me, of which she had asked for little else, she said, I'm sorry, but I have to say these things. Later, however, she ceased to apologize. One day, when she was sitting on a bench alone with me in the park, I had said repeatedly that, sadly, I could not take her back to live with her mother because her mother was no longer there. On this occasion, Mum turned to me and very unusually looked me straight in the eye. Well, then, damn you. Damn you to hell. On the 7th of November 2001, Mum was given a flu jab. The following day, she was alone in her room when she lay down on her bed and died. She was 91. For her funeral eight days later, Bill Patterson gave me his recording of Robert Burns's poem, A Fond Kiss, which includes the lines, I'll ne'er blame my partial fancy, Nathan could resist my Nancy. In my eulogy, I remembered how deliberately she'd given my sister and me the freedom which she herself had been denied in her upbringing. It was as if she had stepped aside in order that we might go ahead. Mum wanted us to have something she never had or feared to have. There is, in the narrowness of her expectation, something which burnt peculiarly bright, peculiarly pure. In modesty, she found grace. Expecting less than us, she somehow therefore gave more. If the struggle of life is to hold on to what is best in us, Mum won that struggle triumphantly. Thanks, David. So. <laughs> there is, of course, a signing after this where you can purchase the book. Now, it's questions. Do we have a... No? No questions? Not one? Let's have one. Come on. Let's do a David Hare revolt. Come on. <laughs> can you want? <laughs> you need a night, yeah. Right. Can, can, you, can you give me some idea of how you arrived at the title for your Oh, book? Blue Touch Paper. Yeah, yeah uh, just meaning that, I, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> light the Blue Touch Paper and retire. You know, that, that, that I became a writer. It's, it's about how I became a writer and about the total devastation and chaos it caused around me when I, when I became a writer. There's a problem with the American edition, which is American fireworks don't have a blue touch pa paper. Uh, they have something, it's called, oh God, it's got another word, and it's just such an unattractive word that I've decided to leave it as it is. A couple more, come on, we've got two or three minutes. No? No, they've turned it off. You mentioned music. Speak up a bit. Yeah. You mentioned music in the 70s. Was music important to Oh, yeah. But binge, you know. It was, it's just binge. I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, to be honest, uh, as I say, the, I don't know if you know the cover of um, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Do you know that one? You know the cover where he's got his arm around Suze Rotolo the artist, and she's wearing a green coat. Are you smiling in recognition? Yeah. Well, that to me was more powerful than music. In other words, that was my fantasy of what I wanted my life to be. Uh, and the, the, the imagery on the cover, you know, I put the music of Dylan on, but really what I was doing was just envying the idea that you could put your arm around Suze Rotolo, really. And... Uh, <laughs> It, it was just everything my life wasn't and I wanted it to be. 
Uh, but Dylan was the soundtrack to all our lives. And the band as well as Dylan, of course. Yeah. Should we have one more question? One then more. Sorry, gentlemen, we, we are out of time. Okay, all right. We're going to have to stop it there. Continue to ask Sorry, David at the, at the signing. Yeah. Well, thank we'll, you all very I'll much. I'll do it at the Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.